the rightful king, Aragorn, had returned to the land of Gondor. And as Aragorn is crowned, he said to his people, let us together rebuild this world that we may share in the days of peace. Stirring words, aren't they? Well, Matthew 3 is also a story about a return of the king. It's the first time we meet Jesus as a man in Matthew's gospel. As we learned last week, he is a king who is also God. And the news announced by John is that the kingdom of heaven is coming. God is returning to Israel, to his people. And he is coming to make things right. He is coming to bring peace by defeating the forces of darkness. He is coming to bring an end to the exile of God's people. But the people aren't ready yet. They need to repent. They need to turn away from their sins. And they need to bear fruit. They need to live in a way that shows that they are following the king and to truly live as God's people. But Matthew 3 isn't just a story about the people in Jesus' day. These words of John the Baptist calling people to repent and bear fruit are also words of warning for us. It's a call for every follower of Jesus. We can't presume on the king. To be part of his kingdom means to live his way. But it's not a matter of gritting our teeth and pulling up our socks and trying harder because the king has taken off his crown and been baptised with us and for us. He has lived the life of obedience for us and made possible for us to follow him. Let's pray as we come to God's word today. Father God, thank you so much for this message today of the return of the king. Um, Lord, thank you that the king has come to make things right with his people and he has come to make them right for us as well. Father, as we hear these words of warning to repent and bear fruit, we pray that you'll give us ears to listen. We pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the king who takes off his crown for our sake and that we would follow him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 3 starts off with the news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and ruling over that kingdom is, of course, a king. So this is an announcement that the king is coming and that's our first point. The king is coming. And to understand the impact of those words, we need to understand a bit of the background of the times when John came. It was about 600 years earlier when the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah, was taken to Babylon in exile. God had left them because of their rebellion. The glory of God had left the temple um, the prophet Ezekiel tells us, before they were dragged off to Babylon. Now, the exile lasted 70 years, and after that time, a remnant, not all the people, but a remnant of them, came back to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They rebuilt a temple, 
and they start, did, their re, uh, did their best to rebuild Israel. But the trouble was that God's presence never returned to the temple and he never returned to Israel. The glory, uh, sorry, Israel was really only a puny reflection of its glory days. And to make matters worse, now in John's day, they weren't in control of their own land. There were these hated Romans occupying their land. And that fact reinforced to every good Jew, every proud Jew, that they were not living under God's blessing. In a very real sense, they were really still in exile. Not from the land, but from God's presence. But suddenly now we hear the news that the king is coming back. God's presence coming back to his people. But they were only too aware of the reason why God left in the first place. They were a rebellious and sinful people. And so things needed to change if God was to live with them again. And that was John's message. Uh, by the way, have your Bibles open. It's helpful. We'll be working through the passage. Uh, or if you want, just want to listen and look at the screen, we'll have the Bible verses up on the screen. So John says in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then quoting from Isaiah 40, he goes on to say, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And then John baptised people as they confess their sins, as it says in verse 6. Now, in the church as Christians, we're used to the idea of being baptised, aren't we, as a normal part of becoming a Christian, uh, kind of nailing your flag to the mask. It's a normal part of the Christian life. But that wasn't the case in John's day. It was a very unusual thing for Jews to be baptised. A very unusual thing for a very unusual time. This time of great expectation when the king would return. And it required extraordinary measures. John knew and many of the people knew that they needed radical change to get right for the coming of the king. Business as usual, going through the normal religious rituals, just weren't going to cut it. And that's, so that's why they are being baptised and taking this radical step. So baptism wasn't a normal part of religious life for a Jew. Baptism was something that Gentiles did. Gentiles who didn't know the law, didn't follow the law, but when they became proselytes or a follower of Judaism, they would become baptised. They would, they would be baptised. But Jews didn't get baptised because they didn't have to. They had the law. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple. Uh, all things that they, they had, all that they needed. They, had, they were circumcised. They had all that they needed to be in a right covenant relationship with, with God. But then John comes preaching repentance and baptism 
Because the king was coming, the people needed to take this radical step to deal with their sin. They needed to act like Gentiles. They needed to act like unbelievers because that's the position they found themselves in and they needed to make a completely new start. We're given a clue about the state of the nation of Israel at this time by the way that John is described. Have a look at verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Kind of seems like a curious little detail, doesn't it, for Matthew to add. We, we might wonder why Matthew would include it. Well, the reason is to remind the readers that John is very much like another prophet from long ago. And that is Elijah. Elijah also get, got around in the same kind of clothing. Later on, Jesus explicitly says that John was like a, another Elijah, a, a, like a rebirth of Elijah. So what's the significance of John being like this guy, Elijah? Well, Elijah came preaching to a people who were faithless and had sold out. In Elijah's day, Israel was in desperate straits. And so Matthew is making the point that Israel is now in the same position as in Elijah's day. Idolatry was rampant. Uh, the people had sold out. And now Israel was still in the same boat. They were still desperate. They were rebellious. They were still in exile from God. But now the king was returning and they needed to get ready. Well, as John is baptising, he looks up and he sees that the cavalry arrives. Two groups of religious heavies have come to check out what John is up to. And John greets them appropriately. Have a look in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The Pharisees and Sadducees represented all that was wrong with Israel. John is telling people to get ready for the king. To get ready for the king, they need to repent and bear fruit. That's our second point. But the Pharisees and Sadducees did neither of those things. They didn't repent and they didn't bear fruit. Now Matthew gives us a hint that these two people, groups of people came to John for very different reasons to those who are being baptised. Notice that he says that in verse 7, they were coming to where he was baptising. But there's no mention of them wanting to be baptised. And that's backed up by John's response. John launches into them with both barrels because he knew that they weren't interested in repenting. 
What's much more likely is that these guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees, wanted to see what was going on, what John was up to, so that they could put a lid on it. You see, they would have been pretty interested in stopping what John was doing. These guys were the experts in the law and the ones who controlled the religious life of the people. This baptism thing was outside the law. It wasn't a part of the religious rule book. It wasn't part of the law of Moses. It was nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. And they didn't want some hairy prophet coming and doing stuff that they just couldn't control. So John knows that these guys didn't come to submit to getting down into the water. And he doesn't hold back in pointing out what was wrong with them. They needed to repent and bear fruit. And don't think you can presume on God, he says, because of your background. Verse 9, do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. You see, the Pharisees and, Pharisees and Sadducees thought that their heritage as God's chosen people, Israelites who were experts in the law of Moses, they thought that was kind of a golden ticket to being right with God. They would have pointed to the promises that God had given to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, that he would raise up a nation and bless them. They would have pointed to the promise to, that uh, God gave to Moses that Israel would be a chosen nation, God's own people. But John is saying to them, all that stuff doesn't mean a thing if you're not living as God's people. If you're not repenting, turning away from sin, and if you're not producing fruit, loving God and neighbour in their hearts and in their actions, then all that tradition, all that, all that heritage doesn't mean a thing. The Pharisees and Sadducees had a massive blind spot. They thought that outward obedience to the law, to the letter of the law, was good enough. But Jesus tells us later on in the Gospels that um, inwardly they are full of greed and corruption. Their hearts just weren't right with God. Now, we may look at these guys and say, oh man, how could they be so blind? But perhaps we can be guilty of doing the same things too. You see, the call to repent and bear fruit is what the king demands of us too. Hearing John's words of warning is a healthy thing for us. To honestly ask yourself, am I bearing fruit? Because it's entirely possible for us to live like a Pharisee. Now we need to recognise at this point that John's message was for people um, who did not yet know who Jesus was. Jesus had not yet declared, started his public ministry. His baptism was about repenting of sins and to get ready for Jesus. But it's quite appropriate for us to apply this to us. Because repenting of our sins and bearing fruit are all part of responding 
to the king after he has come as well. And we see that woven throughout the Gospels, don't we? Jesus' message constantly calls us, uh, calls his people to uh, repent and to bear fruit. That's how we respond to the Gospel. Now, in our tradition, we rightly emphasise that if we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we can be confident that we can be secure in our relationship with God. God will never let us go. And that is absolutely true. That is a truth that we need to stand on and die on. But we must never presume on God. We must never think, Now, I prayed a prayer five years ago to trust in Jesus. Now my sins are forgiven, so it doesn't matter now how I live. Or, I have been baptised. So, um, or, I have always come to church, so now I'm okay. Or, I'm not really growing as a Christian. I'm just sort of cruising, but it's okay because I am a Christian. God loves me. Or I'm not really making a priority of coming to church or to CG. I'm just taking a break from ministry for a while. Now, please hear me right. I'm not saying it's never wrong to pull back and uh, uh, from ministry commitments if you know things have been tough and, and we all need to um, uh, take care of ourselves. I'm not saying that the amount we grow is somehow a mark of being saved either. But what John is preaching against is an attitude of complacency or worse, of arrogance, where we think it doesn't matter how I live because Jesus died for me. Producing fruit doesn't make us a Christian. So it's not saying that we are saved by what we do. But if we belong to Jesus, we will bear fruit. Fruit is a sign of our relationship with the King. It's evidence of our salvation. It's a little bit like marriage. Um, I'm going to embarrass my wife now. I'm married to Julie Uh, You might say the fruit of our marriage is our three boys. Uh, As well as that, uh, like most married couples, we we live together, we share finances, we uh, do um, most things together uh, and and we share a lot of things together. Uh, And of course, Julie has come to like all the things I like. Uh, Well, okay, except coffee and uh, yeah, she doesn't like running. Uh, she doesn't like my ca- taste in K-dramas. But apart from that, you get, you get the point. Um, now, none of those things make me married. But they're evidence of the fact that I am married. Right? And that's like bearing fruit as a believer. The fruit you produce as a Christian doesn't make you a Christian but it's evidence that you are one. It's evidence that you have a relationship with Jesus. So what does it mean to bear fruit? What is it? Perhaps the best summary that we have in the Bible is found in Galatians 5, 
22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. If you think about those things, they're, they're all attitudes of the heart, aren't they? They're kind of internal. Responding to God and to people with love, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. The Pharisees and Sadducees did all the outward stuff. They were great at obeying the law, the religious rituals, the sacrifices, keeping the Sabbath, all that kind of stuff. But what they lacked was a heart of love. And for us, it's not about how many ministries you're serving in or, or what our outward activities that you're, you're doing. It's about your heart. And you know your heart. You know your heart. You know whether you come to church with joy, love, a generous heart. I'm not talking about all the time, like we all have bad days, but I'm saying as a, as a habitual, ongoing um, mark of your life, whether you come to church with joy, love, a generous heart, wanting to bless others, or do you come with a heart that's full of jealousy, selfishness, coldness to God and to other people? So John tells the people to get ready for the king by bearing fruit and repenting. And then he finishes off with a warning, verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The king is coming to judge the people and you better be ready. Make sure you are ready. And then, suddenly, the king is here. He comes to John. And what does he do? Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Our third point is that the king comes without a crown. He doesn't come with a sword of judgment. He doesn't come at the head of an army. He doesn't come looking like a king at all. Instead, he comes to be baptised. He comes in humility, identifying himself with his sinful people, being baptised for repentance with, for, for, from sins. Now, this text is a massive understatement for how John must have reacted. This was shocking. John had just finished saying that, look, I'm not worthy to carry the sandals of, of this Messiah King who is coming after me. But the King insists on submitting to John and connecting himself with the people who he came to judge. 
So John relents and baptises Jesus. As he comes out of the water, verse 16, at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A remarkable sign from heaven showing who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. Before the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, ordinary people didn't have God's Spirit. Or if they did, it was only on very special occasions. But now God the Father is giving his Spirit to his Son. The Old Testament talks about God's suffering servant who would save his people. He would have his spirit. The Messiah King would be full of God's spirit. And so God is showing that all these figures from the Old Testament meet in Jesus. And then a voice from heaven announces that this is my beloved son and with him I am well pleased. The verdict of the Father on his Son. And it's a statement that both identifies Jesus with us and separates him from us. We saw last week that Jesus fleeing to Egypt with Mary and Joseph connected him with Israel and the beginnings of the the nation Israel uh, from their time in Egypt. And remember that Israel was also called God's Son. So here Jesus is identifying with Israel again by going through baptism as God's son. And remember that we are the new Israel. As God's people, he identifies with us. He was without sin, so he didn't need to be baptised. And yet he chooses to be in solidarity with us. He suffered misunderstanding, isolation, rejection, humiliation and the most extreme injustice in being killed for the truth of who he was as the Son of God. He has been through everything that we go through here on earth and more. And so when you are struggling in your walk with God, struggling to bear fruit, And thinking, man, this is hard. Take comfort in the fact that our king has gone through the trenches with us, before us. And he promises to continue to be with us. Emmanuel, the God, is with us. But at the same time, Jesus is God's one and only son. He is uniquely man and God. He was uniquely qualified to live the faithful life of obedience that we could not live. As we saw last week, Jesus came to live with us and he also came to live for us. He bore fruit for us and most of all, he died for us. None of us would ever be ready for the king. None of us are capable of producing fruit that is acceptable for him. But Jesus has made sure 
that you and I are ready for the King. He died for our sin. He has made us perfect in God's sight. He has also given us his spirit that changes our hearts so that we can produce fruit in our lives. So what's the secret of bearing fruit? It's to fix our eyes on our king. The more we know him, the more we love him. The more we grasp that the rightful judge of the world came and put his crown aside for our sake, the more we want to live his way. The more we understand the amazing grace of the gospel, that we deserve death, yet the king of the universe came and died for us, the more we will want to please him, follow him, bear fruit for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that the King has come. Thank you so much, Lord, that he came as a king who put his crown aside for us. That he was willing to be baptised with us, baptised for us. Thank you, Father, that he has done what we we ourselves could not do. Um, He has been the faithful servant. He has been Israel where we, where we failed. Uh, thank you, Father, that he has borne fruit uh, where we on ourselves could never bear fruit. Thank you, Father, that he is our king who died for us. And we pray that we would fix our eyes on him and that as we do that, that you would enable us to bear fruit for you uh, and to do so with thankful hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.